Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Adam Klickfeld. And before we end Shabbat, we'll do a little bit of Torah study into Parshat Naso. So when someone, uh, a member of the community saw the title of my text sheet that I sent around in the Shabbat bulletin, Sota, You Get What You Deserve, they wrote back to me, really? You're really going to go there, Rabbi Klickfeld? And what I think was meant by that incredulity is that Sota, which is this long section in the middle of Parshat Naso, is a hard thing to talk about. It's a hard topic for moderns to talk about. It's one of those, what some people consider to be a terror text, a section of the Torah that we almost wish were not there, which almost sounds like sacrilege, but there are some problematic parts of the Torah. I read problematic parts of the Torah as invitations to reckon with it, to reckon with the challenge that the text provides us with with today, to reckon with the real human reality and stories that were happening back then such that this material was composed in the first place, and to know that in some ways human beings and their urges and their foibles and their instincts and their failures have not evolved that much. Law has evolved. A sense of fairness amongst the genders hopefully has evolved. Human beings at their core, I'm not sure how different of a species we are now, a species, than we were thousands of years ago. And jealousy and suspicion and licentiousness and two-facedness and cynicism and hypocrisy, which are rampant now, I think they were rampant in the era of the Torah, And I think some of the things that we witness in the Torah that are hard for us to stomach are watching that society's, through God's inspiration, attempt to deal with these very human characteristics when human beings find themselves in complex relationships. And so, yes, I'm going to go there with Sota. And I'm going to go there because I find a masterful reading of a text within Sota that somehow turns on its head what seemed obviously, obviously troubling about the original text. Okay, if you need some context, look at the first source of the source sheet if you have it in front of you or printed it out, or if you have a Bible, chapter 5 of the book of Amidbar, verse 12, chapter 5 of number verse 12. This is the beginning of the long column dealing with the Sota. V'daber el b'nei Yisrael. God said to Moses, Speak to the children of Israel, Talehem, and say to them, Ish, ish, any man, ishto, if his wife should go astray, and you see in that um, verb, the verb from which we get the noun, sota. A sota is someone who's gone astray, listot, to go astray. Any man whose wife has gone astray, umma'ala vo ma'al. Translated here as, and has broken faith with him. It's interesting, the root ma'al, mem ayin lamed, means to take something that doesn't belong to you. To take something sacred, consecrated, that doesn't belong to you. Mi'ilah um, is a sin when you take something that had been sent to the temple, and it belonged to the temple, belonged to the, the holy part of the community, you took it for yourself. That's mi'ilah. 
So now we're talking about a woman suspected. It doesn't say suspected in the verse. It says it as if she did go astray, but implied is suspected. We don't know for sure. And, and trespassed by him, meaning took something, in some ways actually gave something or is suspected of giving something to someone else that didn't belong to that other person. I want to say something very careful. I tell this to every couple that I marry. I don't think Judaism ever was, and it certainly is not for me, a tradition in which marriage means the selling of a person as property. There have been societies where women, to our great disgrace, have been chattel. I don't believe even in the, in the most narrow ways of understanding the Jewish laws of marriage of Kiddushin, that what was being sold was the woman herself. But something was being sold. That's why a ring goes on a finger. The ring goes in exchange. The ring, which is something of value, it has to be a least shaver pruta, worth a pruta, goes to the wife in something in exchange for something of value that goes to the husband. What is the wife offering of value to the husband? Not herself per se, but her troth, betrothal, her fidelity, her oneness. Essentially, what was is being purchased in a betrothal, and I do think that a betrothal is a purchase, are exclusive intimate rights. Nowadays, we believe, and when I marry couples, that betrothal is mutual. Both husband and wife are selling to one another in exchange for a ring. Exclusive intimate rights. Exclusive marital intimacy. Which means that that intimacy belongs to the partner in a marriage. Which means that if one partner in the marriage offers that intimacy to someone else, that is a mi'ilah, that is a trespass giving something to someone that they never purchased. That may be uncomfortable to think of it that way, but it's very honest to the Jewish tradition. And by the way, I think it's what every couple should be thinking under the chuppah. Yes, I am promising troth to you that I'll be to you and only to you. Okay. What happens next in the, in the column is very disturbing. Basically, if a husband has any kind of suspicion that his wife might have been an adulterer, he can force her to drink this terrible, terrible, bitter water that was a cursed water, which, had she been guilty, would have destroyed her, distended her belly and destroyed her. And were she to be innocent of the adultery, according to the way the Torah understands it, she would emerge without any blemish. It's a little hocus-pocus. It's a little oracular. I want to put that aside for a second, hang on to the fact that I think it's right for us to be, find problematic the notion that a husband, simply by being suspicious of her, could force her through this terrible ordeal, even if the ordeal was set up in such a way that suggested if she were innocent, that she would go free. It's still an imbalanced way of understanding power in a relationship and very unfair to the women in a marriage and putting a lot of power in the hands of a man who just looks askance for a second and wonders, is my wife being faithful? And it should go without saying that the Torah does not provide that in reverse. A woman may not suspect her husband of adultery and then go have him drink this. Part of the reason is because back then there was polygamy. And so it, it, if a man was with another woman, it may not have been adultery. It may have been a second or a third marriage. 
Put that aside and follow a string with me on the text sheet in front of you, or I'll just read it out loud if you don't have it. Rashi on that verse, Rashi who culls from all the Midrashic material and then very concisely makes a point in trying to decipher the text. Sometimes the point he makes is so subtle it's hard to figure out what he's saying, and even more so, sometimes it's hard to figure out what his question is. You can hear his answer, but you don't know what his question is. On that phrase, ish, ish ki tishte ishto, a man who suspects his wife. Rashi says, What's written just above this section? Maybe we'll get a clue into what's going on in the Sota if we remind ourselves what was written just before the section. And just before the section, actually in verse 10, where we had been in verse 12, and he quotes it, it's a section dealing with gifts that you give to the priests once you give it to them. You can't take them back. The priest gets to hold on to it. And those gifts might be voluntary gifts or tithes, masrot. So Rashi quotes that verse, Ish et kodashav lo yiyu. Each man, in this case a priest, his holy things that you've donated to him, lo yiyu, belong to him. They never can be taken away from him. That's the quote from the verse. Rashi says, quizzically I would say, Im atam akev matnot hakohen. If you're stingy and you don't give to the priest, the gifts that you're supposed to give, the, the, the portion of your income, your taxes essentially, which is what that verse is about. Chayecha, believe you me, you're going to eventually have to come in front of the Kohen to bring your suspected wife in front of him. You read this Rashi and you're like, what? What's the connection? What's the connection First of all, what's his, how is he answering anything in the verse? And what's his connection between if I don't give the proper tithes to the priest, why would that mean that I would the next week suspect my wife of adultery and find myself in some front of the priest? It's an odd Rashi that doesn't explain everything that I think he's trying to say. But let's go look at that verse in full. So chapter 5 of Bamidvar, verse 10 we just quoted most of it. Each man, in this case a priest, his holy things, meaning the things that have been donated to him, will be to him. And um, for a person, when he gives it to the Kohen, it belongs to that Kohen. There's no, no taking back what you've given to the Kohen and no holding back what you should give to the Kohen. On Rashi on that verse, okay, to be clear, not our verse in Sota. Rashi quotes this verse when he comments on our verse in Sota, but when Rashi speaks on that verse two verses ago, he says something fascinating. Midrash Agadah. There is a lovely Midrash. I want to put in a parenthesis here. Those of you in my Rashi class know about, all about this. Rashi is quoting Midrash from the rabbis all the time. Rashi lived in the 11th century. He's quoting rabbis from the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th centuries all the time. Occasionally, and, and usually when he quotes the rabbis, he doesn't tell you I'm quoting a Midrash. He just does it. Every once in a while he says, Midrash Agada, I've got a lovely Midrash for you. I hear him saying there, what I'm about to tell you, I'm not sure it's shot on the verse. I'm not sure it's what the verse actually means. But it's such a beautiful, lyrical Midrash, I want to share it with you. What's this Midrash? Ve'ish et kodashav lohiyu. That second, uh, that, 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 sorry, the first part of that verse, which we now quote again, every person, his holy things that have been given to him belong to him. Rashi writes, Mi masrotav. 
If you delay giving your tithes, your tenth, a tenth of your produce, and you might even decide not to give them. Let's say you cheat on your taxes or you skimp or you hold back or you figure who's going to know what kind of computing system they had back then. Will they really know if I haven't given my tithe to the priests? Now he quotes or paraphrased the verse, Lo yihiyu hama'asrot. He, the giver, the one who is supposed to give, will have hama'asrot, the tenths. What does this mean? Sof, his fate is, she'ein sadehu, that his field will only produce, ela echad me'asara, one-tenth, shahital mudalasot, that it would have otherwise produced. What's going on here? Rashi is reading that verse very interestingly. He's saying, Ve'ish et kodashav lo since the stuff that is given to the priests really belong to him, if you don't give it, read the second half of the verse. Ve'ish et kodashav lo Sorry, the second half of the verse. Ish asher yitain la kohen lo If you don't give it to the kohen, then you're going to get the tenth. What does that mean? Not that you're going to get an extra tenth. You're only going to get a tenth. If I hold back on my taxes, because I don't want to go down from 10% to 90%, because this was a tenth tax, then you're only going to get a tenth. Do that math in your head. If I try to save 10 cents on the dollar, I'm going to lose 90 cents on the dollar. How? This is a, this is a society that believes that God really punishes you and sometimes work, like measure for measure and sometimes more measure than you deserve. We still haven't solved the connection to the Sota, but just hold on to this idea that someone who's feeling like he does not want to give to the Kohen is going to end up hurting himself more than had he just given. What's the message we tell every child and every adult? Tell the truth, be honest, because in the long run, that's going to pay off, pay off much more than trying to hide the truth because a lie yields to another lie and that'll get you in trouble and so many movies and so many short stories and so many parables and so many fables have been written like that and this is another one of them. Give your 10% or you'll only be left with 10%. What's the connection to the Sota? Look at the final text if you have it in front of you. If you don't, this is the commentary of the Vilna Gaon. The Vilna Gaon is known in rabbinic circles as the Gra, the Gra, Hagaon, the great sage, Rebbe Eliezer. His name was Eliezer. So the great um, um, wise one, genius Rebbe Eliezer. This is the, the, the Vilna Gaon's commentary. He lived in the 18th century. He was considered the greatest rabbinic mind alive when he was uh, working in Vilna. And he connects these Rashi comments in a beautiful way, which is not what you expect from a ultra-Orthodox, I know that's an anachronistic term, the Vilna Gaon did not think of himself as ultra-Orthodox, he just thought of himself as the rabbi, but a Haredi, black hat, as it were, pious-wearing, Torah-defending, I'm Torah-defending too, but you know what I mean, not particularly modern approach to the text. Here's what he says. Uchshem ruchusho. If you're that guy who tried to hold back from giving to the priest, so that you can end up with 100% rather than 90%. And then what happens is that you get punished by the heavens and you end up with only 10% and you start and you end up reducing your <coughs> possessions. Ishto 
your wife's going to suspect you. In the Sota, in the Torah, the man suspects the wife of adultery. The Vilna Gaon puts in here that Rashi is playing with and the Midrash is playing with that if all of a sudden you come home, particularly in a patriarchal society where you are responsible for all the money and you only have 10 cents of the dollar, the wife's going to suspect you. And what's she going to suspect that you wasted it on? Booze? Gambling? That you wasted your money on deeds of impropriety, deeds of licentiousness, deeds of immodesty. This is a euphemism for prostitution. If you come back with 10% of your paycheck, your wife is going to say, where did that money go? And she's going to suspect that you have been doing things that you ought not be doing. You're the man. As it says, he quotes the Vilna Gon does from the book of Proverbs, Mishlei, Veroezonot, someone who, who dwells among and who, who, who spends a lot of time with, literally who um, is the shepherd of, but who, who kind of hangs out with zonot, prostitutes, Yoved Hon will lose his fortune. So the Vilna Gon is saying that a wife is going to know this verse from Mishlei, see you running out of money, assuming that you're spending it on prostitution. And so then what happens? So she begins, Now she begins to say, well, if you can act licentiously, if you can whore around, if you can break our promise, if you can break troth, maybe I can. And she's not afraid. What is she not afraid of? She's not afraid of She's not afraid of being investigated by that bitter, embittering, cursed waters that the Sota talks about. And why? Should she not be afraid of it? After all, those waters are supposed to be an oracle. If she does whore around, if she does offer herself, those waters are supposed to make it very clear and she'll be executed if she's found to be an adulteress. Why isn't she afraid? Because the rabbis, the Talmud said, in Masechet Sotah, the tractate dealing with this topic, page 47, if the husband in this case is not himself completely free from sin, those waters are going to have no impact on the wife. She's only, even if you kind of lean in and suspend this disbelief, only going to be found out about her adultery if her husband is completely free of iniquity. But if he has been engaging in also impropriety and licentiousness, she gets off scot-free. And the marriage, by the way, doesn't end up so good. And what does this thing eventually devolve into? That the husband, as Rashi predicted in that first Rashi, is going to bring his wife to the Kohen. Look what the Vilna Gaon through Rashi's commentary has done. You read this text, I read this text, and we say, almost shame on you text for putting a wife in such a terrible situation. The Vilna Gaon says it's not that clear. The Vilna Gaon says, if you read it through Rashi, it's suggesting that the way that a family gets into the situation in the first place is because the husband himself was not free of sin. The husband himself made himself a suspect character. The husband himself made himself a suspect character by not being generous with his tithes to the Levite. And because the husband became suspect, then his wife became suspect, then they both become suspect, and then, of course, they're going to have to come in front of the Kohen to work it out. The closest thing to a marriage therapist back then. I love this construction. 
It says, don't you dare read this text so simply as to suggest that any man willy-nilly, no matter what he's done or who he is, can put his wife through a terrible ordeal, even though the verses seem to suggest that. No, this is something suggesting something much more complicated and dynamic. Relationships break down when suspicion builds on suspicion. And if you're certain that your suspect, that your other, your beloved is doing something they ought not to be doing, before you go investigating that, how many parables, how many aphorisms do you know about this in terms of throwing stones in glass houses? Before you go investigating that, you better investigate yourself. Because unless you are clean as a whistle, not only will you not be vindicated, but the relationship is over because it is very hard to stop an avalanche of accusations. It's very hard to heal a relationship when both sides are suspicious of the other. And the Torah knew that. And the rabbis knew that. The rabbis who did live in a patriarchal society, the rabbis who did see women differently than we see them now, they still understood that this was not meant just to expose and embarrass and bring down a woman simply because a husband had suspicions. That we can read this text as a cautionary tale for both husband and wife, for any person in a sacred dyad, to look at their own deeds first. before suspecting the others and to recognize that one lie and one impropriety and one cheat and one scandal can bring down everything that you hold sacred. That's a fabulous message to emerge from our text and a fabulous message to emerge from text that we wouldn't expect to balance out a biblical text so famously imbalanced. And this kind of a, of a construct is one of the reasons why I love rabbinic thought and rabbinic texts and love this diving deep into the Torah text as much as I do. And I hope you did as well and find some of the Torah's material on the Sota redeemed by the rabbis who are much more interested in saving relationships than they were at letting women hang out to dry. I believe that firmly and I'm proud to be the inheritor of that tradition and keeping that wisdom going. Shabbat Shalom. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org. 